today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the Ontario budget dropped this week. Something in there for you? It depends who you ask. Another edition of Twit This Week in Trump. All during the campaign, Trump convinced WikiLeaks to hack into Hillary Clinton's email. Now the founder is being extradited to the United States for being a traitor. What will Trump's take be now? And are you looking for a new job? How about the electricity industry? It's all coming up on The Scott Thompson Show. The Ontario budget dropped yesterday and it revealed that the budget will not be balanced until after the next provincial election. How does this reflect on the Ontario government? Good budget, bad budget? Is it the slash and burn budget we thought it would be or the opposition said it would? Let's bring in Melissa La- uh, Lansman. That's Melissa Lansman, Vice President, Public Affairs, Hill, Knowlton Strategies, and is with us now. Melissa, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me. Your thoughts at first glance with this budget, was it the slash and burn budget that many predicted? Well, it certainly was not. And I think, uh, you know, I think that took a lot of people by surprise yesterday. It deviates substantially from the expectations that you had of this government. They didn't come in and sort of, like you said, slash and burn uh, programs. Um, I think it is a a very smart communications play uh, to tell Ontarians that they have a moderate um, uh, moderate and reasonable approach and they're going to eventually get back to balance. Was it a change in approach or just the first real signs we've seen of what this government is going to do moving forward as far as a fiscal platform? Well, I think the government put clearly yesterday uh, in, you know, it put its markers in the sand in terms of what are the priorities, where are we going to spend money, and I think that you saw a lot of surprises. You know, the transit announcement, which came out before the budget, is, uh, you know, certainly big news in uh, in Toronto. Dental care for low-income seniors, uh, child care uh, was just something probably that you wouldn't expect from uh, from this PC uh, government. But there's also, you know, there's also substantial reductions. Uh, across ministries. So the devil's going to be in the details on those ones, and uh, it's a wait and see. So why the change in approach, do you think? Because it seems as if, uh, and maybe I'm answering my own question here, it seems from day one when this government took office, it was they were being attacked from all angles here, uh, almost you know election campaign style mode. Uh, why do you think the different approach here? Well, I think when you come in as a as a government, and and frankly, you know, to uh, to to talk about how Ford came in, he came in thinking that the deficit um, number was probably a lot less uncovered. So they're contending with a uh, you know a fifteen billion dollar deficit or a thirteen point five billion dollar deficit, and they've really got to sort of make those changes. But it's tough. It's tough to make um, you know significant reductions in in the services that people care about. It's it's tough to cut healthcare and it's tough to cut education. And uh, you know I think the government realized that and uh, and you see that that, that they didn't do that. Do you think uh, the kickback on the autism file had something to do with this uh, as they approached the budget? I don't think any one thing necessarily drives um, government policy as a whole. But this government, we've seen, um, you know, I think what this budget says is that, you know, Doug Ford is probably listening to people, and there's probably a lot of people around Ontario that are in his ear about uh, about education, certainly about healthcare, about social services, about infrastructure, and I think he's answered uh, answered those questions and the expectations that he would come in and uh, and sort of cut everything. I don't think that those were uh, expectations set by anybody other than the people that already didn't like him. Uh, where do you think th- this leaves some of, of his bigger issues moving forward, like education? I mean, obviously, it appears that there's going to be a standoff between teachers' unions and this government. How do they how do they balance this moving forward? Look, I think there was always uh, going to be a standoff between the yeah. teachers' unions and uh, and the Doug Ford government. So you know, it's it's not a it's not a fair shot. But I think you know both sides. The negotiations are coming up at the end of the school year. Um, you know, both sides have to come to the to the table in in good faith. I think the government has uh, has shown that there is an increase in the education um, uh, um, budget. They want to work on the curriculum. They want to work to get those scores up. They want to work to hire new teachers. They want to work to use technology. Um, and I think the teachers need to come to the table uh, and do the very same thing. And it's it's going to be interesting to see if if they can find a solution to move forward because it is, after all, about the students. 
Uh, yeah, that's that's what everybody says. Uh, are we expecting fireworks when it comes to these negotiations? Um, you know, it, it seems to be one way or the highway. And as you said, it, it, there, you know, I'm wondering if there's there's government, any government that that can keep uh, this from becoming a battle. Uh, thinking of of uh, the past negotiations with the Liberal government and working to rule and such, um, do we are we expecting even more fireworks than we saw last time? Look, I, I think it's probably not a good start to the relationship, um, uh, certainly with the teachers union, and that's not all individual uh, teachers. It seems to be uh, it seems to be uh, led by uh, you know the leadership of uh, of the unions. I think you got to let people make the decisions um, on this education, really digest uh, really digest the budget, digest uh, what's in there in terms of a plan going forward. Uh, you know, looking at how we're going to improve math scores, looking at uh, certainly class sizes and, and, and what that means, and come to the table again in good faith. What do you think stands out here or, uh, or is in this budget for the average Ontarian? Well, I think, um, you know, depends on, on where you are and, and, uh, and, and who you are. I think childcare is one that we didn't uh, expect that the government should be pretty proud of. And it's, it's, it's a little bit different than, than what we've been hearing in the past on childcare. It isn't more money thrown in to build government daycare. It really does give parents the flexibility and the choice to choose the kind of daycare that they want, get a tax credit back. And, and at the end of the day, this is about getting people back in the workforce. So, you know, a lot of these measures in the budget center around choice and they center around getting people to work. And I think in terms of the fiscal situation going forward, the more people that are working in this province, the, you know, the more taxes the government uh, collects and the better that uh, it could provide services. Uh, what about the license plate issue? Is this something that we should be focusing on? Does anybody care? I mean, this appears to be just more loose ends that the opposition can grab at. Well, uh, you know, I, I think it's I think it's a, a smart communications plan. I, you know, the media walked into uh, to the lockup, and that's something that uh, that happens in in, uh, in every budget. And they got a shiny new license plate. And budgets are very much around the government's brand. It's an opportunity to uh, you know to for the government to brand itself as the new government in Ontario. They've done exactly that uh, with license plate. While it might not be the most important issue, it allows the government to really put its marker on history and it's very, very difficult for any government afterwards to undo. Uh, good point. Uh, so the big issues here that are standing out for you are obviously transit money for cities like Toronto. Obviously, Hamilton's very happy. It's got its money for its LRT. Uh, dental care for seniors. Are those the pillars in this budget? Well, there's, there, there's pillars, but I think where this budget, um, you know, hits the right balance is that, is, is that we get back to, uh, you know, balance in, in five years, in, 20, in 2023, 2024, and it puts real account, uh, accountability measures on the government to make sure that Ontarians know that's happening. So it's, they can't pull a fast one on us anymore. If the uh, Minister of uh, Finance doesn't report quarterly on, uh, on earnings, he gives up 10% of his salary. We don't often see that from uh, uh, from politicians, and the and the premier gives up ten percent of his salary if the public reporting deadline is missed. So we're going to know as Ontarians if they're on the right track, and uh, and if we can hold their feet to the fire. How big of a concern to Ontarians is balancing the budget? Um, you know, we, we we sat through fifteen years of a liberal uh, government and watched spend, spend, spend. Uh, we we realized that this was getting out of control. We brought in another government to do the opposite. Then we complain when that happens. It seems that we're like a pendulum swinging back and forth. We bring one party in to cut, then we bring the other one in to spend it back up again. Well, if you're the government and every side is mad at you, you're probably hitting the right uh, balance. <laughs> but in terms of in terms of what you know, debt and deficit mean for uh, for the province, the deficit again is the fourth um, fourth line item. That, that means we're paying in interest on uh, on the debt half of what we pay for education. And you know, if the, the faster we reduce that and the less money we pay for interest, the more money that can go to uh, to other services. It's as simple as that. But it's a really tough thing to uh, to explain because the numbers are so big and people just can't relate to billions. Will we still start to notice these cuts like obviously education is talking about reducing uh, uh, or sorry increasing class sizes and such what are other sorts of cuts will we notice out of this do you think 
Well, I think the government's taking um, uh, an approach that uh, that frontline service cuts. Um, that means the services that you and I use aren't going to feel uh, the the brunt of it. But in in yesterday's budget, most of the ministry's overall spend went down, and I think that most people in Ontario would agree that uh, you know not every ministry is 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 running efficiently, and there's there's places in there, there's redundancies in there that you probably won't feel, that you probably won't even know about, um, and uh, and that probably could set us on a course to balance much faster uh, than than we could be. Uh, where does this leave the opposition view of this? Obviously, they were predicting many more cuts than what actually happened. Uh, it seems that people are okay with this budget. Well, I wouldn't say the opposition is okay with it because they, they wouldn't be doing their uh, that, their job. They wouldn't be the opposition, been, yeah. Yeah, I don't think they've been all that effective. Um, I think you saw Andrea Horvath yesterday come out and say that this was a slash and burn budget and people were wondering which budget it was that she was reading. Uh, you know, as we get closer to, uh, to to finding out the details and some of what was outlined in the budget, I think the opposition might have some more fodder. Uh, but I think this was, might have been a disappointment for them uh, because, it, again, it isn't what we expected. It is a little bit of belt tightening and uh, and some targeted spending in areas that they probably agree with. More belt tightening in the second half of all of this? Well, um, you know, it's a it's a wait and see. I think the uh, you know the government's on course with very very uh, conservative estimates about the revenues that it takes in and what it's going to spend. So if they can get back to balance in uh, uh, in in five years, then you know this is this is what you've got. This is the cuts that you're uh, seeing. What about changes to liquor laws? These pretty much minor things. Uh, window dressing for this budget. How do you explain that? Yeah, so I think part of uh, you know part of what why this was in the budget, um, it is an indication that the that the government needs to make these changes that are we are so far behind uh, other provinces and we are far behind. If you've ever traveled to uh, uh, to Europe, it's about just treating adults like adults. Uh, and there are also new revenue streams, uh, you know, uh, liquor licenses and, uh, uh, and uh, a control of, uh, for, for municipalities to decide, you know, how long they could be open. But I think what this signals is that the government might be ready to move on, on substantial reform. And what I mean by that is the way that you and I buy our, uh, our liquor, our wine, our beer. Uh, are we going to see a change in it? Are we going to see more convenience? Are we going to see better prices? Uh, again, everybody was anticipating a slash and burn. This government has certainly been been chastised since it took office for cutting and slashing and, and, and all of that sort of thing. How do you think, uh, if we were to conduct polls a week from now after this budget, how do you think Ontarians are going to feel about it? Um, I think for, for the most part, um, Ontarians would, uh, would be as surprised as they are today that, they, that they, they assume that this government would just cut, 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 and that's, that's not what happened. I think that there's enough big ticket items uh, in here. Uh, Minister Fideli and, and certainly his colleagues and the, and the Premier um, did a lot with, uh, with what they had, and they set the, uh, they set the the course back, or they set the budget back on course to, to balance, and I think that that sits pretty well with uh, with Ontarians, but a week is a long time in politics, and there's still a lot of news to come out from this, so we'll wait and see. How is business viewing this? I think so, in terms of uh, the government's been uh, uh, fairly... Um, Fairly positive on the business side. They've uh, they've cut. You know they they've talked about cutting red tape. Uh, and for businesses, they've lowered the WSIB premium. They've got an intense incentive uh, uh, tax credit. I think overall, uh, there's some concern about competitiveness in Ontario. The federal budget didn't help that very much. The steel tariffs don't help that uh, uh, very much. But in terms of uh, a government that is uh, that is listening to the business community, uh, I think there's a lot of promise there. Uh, but there's still time. Melissa Lanceman has been with us, Vice President, Public Affairs at Hill Knowlton Strategies. Melissa, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks very much. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's head down uh, south of the border, find out what's happening in the United States of America. Reggie Cicchini is with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. He is with us now. Reggie, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. 
Good afternoon. Let's talk about Julian Assange. How is this story and uh, the reports of his arrest, how is that playing in Washington? Well, it depends on what side uh, you're looking at this. If you're looking at it from kind of the, the U.S. and the political side and from those on Capitol Hill, uh, they're happy to see that this has finally kind of uh, taken the next step where uh, he will be uh, extradited to the United States uh, for potential charges because there have been calls for years now that Julian Assange needs to be brought to the United States for aiding and abetting uh, the leaking of, of classified materials uh, from from uh, from the military and from, from other sectors inside uh, the, the National Safety Departments back during the Obama administration. So this is something that uh, people have been really pushing for to say that, look, this needs to happen. He needs to come back here. He kind of needs to face up to what he's done. The other side is uh, saying, uh, conversely, that, you know, he calls himself a journalist and he shouldn't be allowed or he shouldn't be uh, facing any kind of consequences for simply reporting on things. But, you know, the argument is being made right now that, yes, he may be considering himself a journalist and was posting things, but a journalist would never actively go out and seek and hack into something in order to get that information. So it's kind of a, there's, there's kind of two sides that are looking at the story right now. But for the most part, those on Capitol Hill and those inside the administration are happy to see that this has kind of taken the next step forward. How much support does Assange have? Obviously, Jeremy Corbyn, an opposition leader in the UK, has stood up over there saying that he should not be extradited to the United States. Is this freedom of the press or traitor? Well, it depends again on who you're talking to. There's a lot of people in the United States that say that this uh, this man, you know, is a traitor. He's the reason, uh, you know, that someone like Chelsea Manning is in jail right now because they were working together to leak uh, national security information that was confidential, that had no business being in the eyes of the public. So there's a lot of people saying that he, in fact, is a traitor. He kind of went along and against, uh, you know, despite the fact that he's not an American citizen, that he was uh, basically, uh, you know, aiding and abetting those who were releasing the national information uh, that needed to be kept uh, kept secret. So uh, there are. Are, like I said, a number of people out there who are saying, look, this man deserves to face whatever music and penalty that he needs to be facing based on what he's done. Uh, the president, on the other hand, is kind of keeping quiet about this. Uh, we'll get to that in just a second. Uh, as you mentioned, it depends which side you ask on this. Um, uh, what happens when the so-called trader exposes information that people or citizens think is valuable? Does that d- does that make any of this okay, or is it the end of the day? You know, still, what happened here is illegal, and you got to face the consequences. Well, I mean, that's the biggest way to look at it is, look, this was an illegal move and anybody, you know, that finds themselves or thinks them of themselves to be above the law need to, you know, kind of have that bit of a slap from reality that nobody is above the law. But there are a number of people that say, look, the information that that was put out there that was, you know, hacked into by WikiLeaks and then and kind of like disseminated across the uh, across the public, you know, was information that should have been, uh, you know, not kept secret. But there is a reason that things are kept classified. There's a reason that things uh, have a stamp on them that might be redacted, that certain things might be leaked and certain things might not be released to the public and it's simply for the national security of the people who live within the United States. Things are kept out of the public's eyes because in the wrong hands things can be used against the United States. Think, uh, things can be used to uh, potentially uh, create chaos worldwide that could p- be potentially damaging to the United States. So there are reasons that things have to be kept classified and there are reasons that they aren't handed out to the public and that's why there's all the scrutiny right now towards Julian Assange for him saying well look I'm a journalist people needed to see this. The problem is how the information was received in the first place. All right, let's talk about the President of the United States and the situation he's in with this. Obviously, during uh, the campaign, he mentioned WikiLeaks, of which Assange was the founder of, uh, many times daring them to hack into to Hillary's emails and such. Uh, how does he ride this fence? Well, I mean, look, the president has a problem when it comes to how he remembers the past. He has no problems when it comes to, uh, you know, remembering, uh, you know, alleged crimes that may not exist when it comes to Hillary Clinton, or he has no problem remembering how big his electoral count was when he won the vote. But he has a lot of problems when it comes to remembering things that he's actually said and are on the record, up to and including when he was sitting there saying, WikiLeaks, I love you. I want you to get these informations, uh, these emails from Hillary Clinton. I want you to put these emails into the public from the DNC. Now, simply saying, well, I don't know anything about WikiLeaks. I have nothing to say about them. It's just one of those instances where he's found himself caught up in a situation that he won't be able to answer. So instead of giving an answer, he just ignores it and pretends that it never happened. How will that play with Americans, especially veterans? I mean, there's certainly no shortage of clips of him saying that he loves WikiLeaks. How can how can he balance that now that he's trying to extradite a traitor to his own soil? 
Well, I mean, this is something that Democrats may latch onto over the next couple of months as we kind of head into the beginning of what will be the heart of election season. There may be, uh, you know, a group of people saying, look, this is a president who doesn't know how to stand by his word. He doesn't remember the details of things that he says. He doesn't understand what the ramifications are for telling somebody to hack into the Democratic National Committee. And then once that happens and once the information comes out and potentially help Donald Trump, now that there are potential legal ramifications for that, the president's trying to step away from it. Democrats may use this to their advantage to say, why would you put somebody else back into office when they have this kind of record? Republicans, on the other hand, will say, well, look, the president said this. We, the president has said a lot of things. What's the president doing right now that we can kind of avoid having to talk about this kind of controversy? Uh, you know, this could get played up into the, into the election mix as we go along. You know, it's just it's anybody's guess as to how the president's going to react to this the days as we get closer to uh, Assange coming back to the U.S. I think one of the things that stunned most uh, after this president took office was the way he seemingly would embrace traditional enemies and 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 give a hard time to traditional allies uh is this one of those situations that is going to come back to bite him because you know at one time you know he's no russian collusion no this no that no the other uh, then he's inviting people but whether they're russian or wikileaks to hack into uh these emails uh, again can he play both sides of this fence well sooner or later he have to denounce assange and wikileaks Absolutely, he's going to have to. I mean, he's he's basically got no choice at this point with Assange facing extradition on charges in the United States. This is going to be something that will come back to bite the president. We also have to remember that Julian Assange isn't somebody who can very easily be trusted. Say he comes back to the United States, say he beats charges, say he decides to skip out on any kind of bail condition like he did last time and winds up inside another embassy. Uh, who's to say that Assange isn't going to potentially go out and find incriminating emails or hack into something that might have some information about Donald Trump, and then he uses this to say, well, you came after me. Now it's my time to go after you. These are the things that could potentially haunt the president, uh, you know, based on what he said and now how he's trying to react to the situation. Uh, you know, again, this is this is one of those kind of confusing things where we didn't see this coming and now we don't know what to actually expect going mm. forward. Does Assange still have power? Does he still have leverage here? Potentially, but likely not. I mean, this is a man who's been holed up inside an embassy for for years and years now. He's he, you know he looks frail. He doesn't seem to be or appear to be in any kind of good state of mind right now. So how he's able to conduct himself in the days and weeks going forward is really going to play to how we actually see him uh, when he's interacting with officials in the United States. Is there any chance he won't be extradited? Are, are we confident he will be extradited to the states? Well, I mean, there's always, you know, a kind of a what if when extradition uh, orders are released, you know, how long they can take, what actually happens, what kind of court proceedings are actually in play. You know, he's got a good legal team right now that will try to fight this and say what Mr. Assange has done has been for the benefit of a number of people across the United States. So this could be something that gets thrown into the courts right now. But the U.S. has been uh, has been, you know, active about this for the last several years, saying that he needs to face justice for what happened. So the United States isn't going to simply step back and kind of let the Assange legal team move forward and get the upper hand. Uh, as you know, as we all know, and those of us that talk about it, on any given day, there's another one of these to come into the media or, or, or something that we have to process that Donald Trump is, has said. Is there anything in relation to the Assange situation uh, to this issue that could potentially hurt Trump? Or is this just another day in the news? Well, I mean, it is another day in the news. There's a lot of things that kind of pop up throughout any kind of given day in the news cycle that could potentially be damaging to the president. This is just one that kind of has been spinning out for the last couple of days. Something will eventually come forward and, you know, this will take a back burner until any kind of extradition takes place. Again, this is something that could dog the president heading into the election. This is something that could legally come back and bite the president as we head the months and weeks down the road. So, again, you know, whatever happens with this extradition going forward, how the Assange team plays this going forward, uh, you know, is kind of up in the air as to how this Will affect the administration. You know, Reggie, it's going to be fascinating once this campaign really gets into high gear, what the commercials will be like, because there's just so much stuff on him. There's just so many things that he said that come back, that can come back to haunt him. How will he combat that? And, and how will the Dems make this look like they're not throwing mud through the whole campaign? Well, I mean, look, the president said a number of things that were contradictory on the campaign trail back in 2016. And even when he announced back in 2015 that Democrats used in ads as they were trying to go after him or at least trying to stand up or vouch for uh, Democrats that were running in the races, this is going to be no different. Now yeah. the president's been in office for two years. They're able to take the information to what he said to the things that haven't actually been accomplished and use this. The president, you know, he's always said, when you hit me, I'm going to hit you back even harder. We can just anticipate that this campaign ad season is going to be uh, ugly at best. 
past. Uh, do you think the American people are looking at this and, 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 and not getting as riled up whenever he says something that's bizarre and just shrugs their shoulders and says, that's him, we're doing well, who cares? A lot of people who have been supporting the president for two years, that's exactly what they think. They, you know, they they're under the impression that the president gets up there. He says what he needs to say because it rattles nerves. It keeps Democrats kind of worried that the Republicans are going to come up from behind them at any point and overtake them and overpower them. And the president's uh, supporters like to hear him do that. They like to hear him be unconventional and say things that are off the cuff and, you know, a little less uh, what you would hear from from presidents in the past. So this is something that's kind of kept the president at that 42, 43 percent support base for the last several years years and what it's going to continue to have people lining up to get into the stadiums to see him speak. Mm, good point. Uh, any more on the Mueller report? Uh, all of this stuff, we've seemed to have forgotten about that. Uh, when are we going to see it? They said mid-April. Uh, when are we closer? Are we closer to that date? We are closer to that date. The attorney general was in the hot seat on Capitol Hill just a couple within the last couple of days, and he said that he does intend to release the full report at some point next week, or at least before next Friday. Uh, the entire report, despite the fact that it will be in front of people, uh, will have numerous pages of redacted information because he says that there's grand jury information that can't be released to the public. There's uh, information about that are ongoing active investigations that can't be released to the public. And for people who might have been caught up in the investigation but don't have anything uh, to be guilty for, that's all going to be redacted. Democrats say, well, that's not enough. We want to see absolutely everything that's in this report. Uh, that's going to end up being a court battle that we deal with for the uh, you know the weeks and months going forward. But sometime in the next seven days, we are likely going to see at least a little bit more than what we had from that four-page summary that was handed out by the AG not long ago. Is there any reason to think that Democrats will be any happier once that happens? Uh, we all know how the 400 pages went down to four pages. Are we just going to see 400 pages of redaction? I mean, is that going to keep anybody happy? Well, Democrats are already saying, look, whatever's redacted, we need to be able to see, regardless of whether or not it's allowed to be out in the public. But I think that this will be enough to satisfy some Democrats to say, well, here we can actually read into more information in this. You know, there's actually a little bit more than we can look at. Other Democrats are going to say this is not enough. We need to get the full picture. And if Democrats aren't satisfied with this, we can uh, potentially see going down the line a subpoena issued for Robert Mueller to come and testify, because all they have to do then is ask him a question under oath to basically read any page of that of that document that's out there. And and he would have no choice but to comply with them because that's what that's what the question would be under oath. So this is something that we can see a battle within the Democratic Party starting up going forward. Uh, when this finally does uh, uh, come to the surface, do you think things will be any different, or it will you know things will just be solidified the way they are? In other words, if you agree with the president, you agree. If you don't, you don't. Uh, because it appears that Mueller said there's nothing really in there that uh, that's legally binding. Is this just going to end up, uh, you know, a he said, she said, a he said, he said thing at the end of the day? I mean, it's possible, but there are things that are inside that report that have left, uh, you know, many more questions than answers, especially when it comes to something along the lines of obstruction. Robert Mueller said that he wasn't able to kind of provide a, a link of whether or not there was or wasn't obstruction that was linked to, to the president. And William Barr basically put an announcement out there saying, well, look, there is no obstruction. If there finds out or if Democrats do see that there could be a potential link there, I think that's going to be something that the president's going to need to watch out for. He says that he's fully exonerated right now, but Robert Mueller, the man who conducted that investigation for two years, did not exonerate the president when it comes to obstruction. So this is something that, you know, Democrats are going to dig into. This is going to be something like the president's tax returns. They don't see it, so they want to know what the information is. It's the same with exoneration. There was no direct link from Mueller, so they want to know uh, what the link is that binds it together. Uh, is uh, let's talk about the Democrats and, and the mass amount of people they've got running for their leadership. Joe Biden, I don't believe, has announced yet. Certainly issues in regard to the touching and da-da-da-da-da in the past. Has that affected him in any way? Uh, how are people responding to that? Well, so, I mean, there's just this kind of growing number of Democrats that are potentially or already in the race to uh, to try and take on Donald Trump as we head into the election. Joe Biden, it's still one of those questions as to whether or not he is or is not going to get into the race. There's a large number of people that back him. There's a large number of people that also say this is a man who's past his prime. This is a man who has an old way of thinking. And this is why he's in these situations right now when it comes to inappropriate behavior when he's uh, when he's around certain people, albeit in front of the camera and in a public setting. There's people saying that he's not the right man to be at the helm of the Democratic Party. Uh, you know, he hasn't kind of, you know, missed a step in this. He's been kind of taking everything with stride moving forward. We may hear from him in the next couple of weeks as to what a definitive answer is going to be if he is going to run. And if he does run, it's going to be a big fight between him and the president because the president has nothing nice to say about Joe Biden on any given day. Mm. The two of them head to head in a debate would be interesting to watch. 
Uh, getting back to the Mexican border, cha- uh, chatter of closing that down last week, that's obviously uh, subsided. How does he move forward with this discussion, especially when he's saying things like we're full and, and so on and so forth? But this is obviously still a touchy subject with Americans. Yeah, and immigration is going to be something that plays hard into the 2020 election. The president, you know, he campaigned on building a wall in order to stop immigrants from being able to get over the border. That obviously hasn't happened in the last two years. He has been able to get some funding to rebuild fence that's in place right now. But for the most part, the president still uh, maintains this hard line that immigration needs to stop. There's been reports that at certain points he was trying to get uh, people within the Department of Homeland Security to basically, when they were taking and apprehending people from crossing the border illegally, uh, taking them and dumping them into uh, so-called sanctuary cities around the United States, yeah. basically as some kind of comeuppance for the for the Democratic area or Democratic leaders who are in that area. That's one way that he's kind of steering this immigration debate into kind of, uh, you know, uncharted territory to what people don't actually know about. When it comes to keeping the border open, for the most part, it will likely stay open right now. There's a lot of eco- uh, economic impacts that could take place if he decides to shut down that border. But immigration is a big talking point for the president, and he's going to carry this for the next two years. It's interesting because, uh, you know, like everything he talks about it just becomes so divisive and so inflammatory that a lot of the times the facts get lost in the sauce here i remember him one time saying you know we have a lottery system here it doesn't work we need a system like what canada has it would seem that any american politician that would try to sell that it would probably work uh because at the end of the day their system is much more lax than what ours is whereas most would assume it's the opposite how does he get that message across without sounding like he's he hates everybody? I mean, again, the message sounds simple, but somehow between the brain and the mouth, it, it ends up going awry. Well, it does, and it all it doesn't help the the fact that the president has surrounded himself with really hard line right leaning uh, uh, policy yeah. advisors when it comes to immigration. So no matter how you want to address the situation, whether it's be more like Canada, be more like other countries in Europe, be more like some of the Asian countries, uh, the fact that he has somebody like Stephen Miller, who is almost anti-immigration, uh, kind of leading the discussion on how these things happen is yeah. how the president ends up getting caught in these kind of whirlwind comments that most people see as either being hot or cold. Uh, the, I even feel embarrassed bringing this up. Uh, she's very good with numbers. Trump says he's considered or considered his daughter Ivanka to lead the World Bank. Do do people even does this register anymore? Or does this just go over the uh, over this the back like the, water off a dock? It's one of those comments where you see the president say something like this, and you throw your hands and you say, "Why do we even cover the president anymore?" Because we don't understand what he's saying. Look, is 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 his daughter good with numbers? Probably. She had a very successful uh, you know business empire, a clothing empire. She she kind of had her hand in the business world, but I don't think that that quite qualifies you to be the you know involved or the head of the World Bank. It's usually somebody who has an economic policy background. Nonetheless, the president did say you know she would be good at this job, but I couldn't really put her there. I couldn't really push her into politics because people would cry nepotism, and absolutely they would. Uh, nonetheless, the president has a soft spot for his daughter. She's the only one holding it a, a post inside the administration right now, so she does have you know the the kind of uh, skill and go get them for you know dealing with political issues i just think when the president says these things it's kind of one of those you know look at how great my family is Mm. we're continuing to do all this good work does his daughter have much influence over him do you think well, people thought that she might have some kind of influence when it came to things like climate change or when it came to LGBT rights or uh, when it came to kind of protecting the family in the United States. She kind of has a different way of thinking than her father. She really tries to get the message out there that, uh, you know, equal pay needs to be something that is looked at. Maternity leave needs to be something that's looked at. So. Well, she is kind of doing her own thing. The president's not really paying attention to it, but she does kind of have that influence to push him and say, well, look, Dad, these are things that need to be discussed right now. Maybe take a little less of a hard line on them right now. And usually what he does is just stop talking about it altogether. Do you think they're giving him advice on WikiLeaks and how he positions himself here, especially because this is going to continue to be in the news as this extradition goes through? Well, of course, they're probably giving him information, but the president doesn't often listen to what his advisors have to say. You have to think back to when uh, Vladimir Putin won the election and there was a big sign in front of him that said, do not congratulate. And the president went out there and congratulated Vladimir Putin. So <laughs> policy advisors and people inside the White House can tell the president one thing. It's just, you know, kind of anyone's guess as to whether he actually wants to listen to what the people have to say. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News based in Washington. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the insight. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Thank you, sir. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. 
many people talk about uh, young people and jobs and what, where is the future? What is the future for young people when they're entering school, uh, college, university, what have you? Uh, where are the jobs going to be? How do they best uh, aim themselves in the direction where when they come out, they'll have secure employment? Notice I said secure. Employment's one thing. Secure is another. You know, I remember my father worked for the same company for like 34 years. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, Most people, they figure the average worker now, every five to six years will change not only companies, but could actually change occupations. And, you know, obviously you have to place yourself in a position where there is room to grow. Well, apparently... Guess who's looking for 20,000 new workers by 2022? Think about that. 20,000 new workers. 2022. And these aren't uh, precarious jobs. Complete with security, benefits, and such. What will you be doing? Keeping the lights on. According to a report, in order for the country to keep its power on, Canada will need to hire 20,000 new workers by 2022 in energy fields. To talk more about all of this, Michelle Brannigan is with us, CEO of Electricity Human Resources Canada, and on the line with us now. Michelle, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, glad to be here. Thank you. So what is Electricity Human Resources Canada? So we are a national uh, organization that looks to identify uh, where the jobs are going to be in the electricity industry and then working with um, employers, working with educators uh, and government and labor, uh, we look to try and help ensure that we have the right people in the right place at the right time, as you said, to keep the lights on in Canada. How did we get to a situation where all of a sudden we'll need 20,000 more by 2022? Well, I don't think it's been a, a surprise for those who, for those of us who've been looking at uh, the labor market uh, data uh, for the last decade. And, and of course, I think a lot of your listeners will be aware of the demographics in Canada. Um, and whereas we're starting to see, you know, a much lower birth rate, and we're starting to see a lot of that baby boomer cohort um, retiring. And in the electricity industry, we're really hitting the peak where most of those jobs that are emerging will be related to the retirements that we're seeing of people who've been in the industry for the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Uh, And really, it's a very exciting time to be in this sector. Uh, There will be billions of dollars uh, invested in the electricity industry across the country in the next few decades. And it's very much no longer business as usual. The sector really is on the cusp of um, an immense transformation. And that's really going to change how we educate, how we train, and we develop the people who are going to build and manage those systems for the next century. Uh, What I found interesting in all of this discussion was people saying, using the word secure, Mm -hmm. uh, because obviously this industry is growing. Well, we, we, need, we, need our, we need our power. Think of how quickly things, as soon as your lights go out or your power goes yeah. out, how paralyzed uh, we as, as users become. Uh, we've seen that very, we're based in Ottawa, and we had a little bit of a, an inkling of that um, uh, last fall when we had a number of uh, tornadoes hit. And, and now, of course, we're starting to see a lot of um, weather issues um, where we're having to address, and our power line technicians really are becoming first, uh, first-line responders. So it's, it's, we have to be very cognizant of ensuring that we have a reliant and a resilient grid. And at the end of the day, we, you know, we talk a lot of time about capital assets, whether that's nuclear stations or hydro facilities, but really ensuring that we have the right people with the right skills. Those are our most important assets. So if these are secure jobs. But I liked in your, in, in your introduction, you know, you talked about people not having necessarily having the same job or going into a job for, for 20 or 30 or 40 years anymore. And I think what's, what's, what's interesting nowadays is that people are going to have to expect to continuously develop and adapt their skills. Yeah, continually it's learning. All the time. Yeah. And I think everybody is going to have very many different 
careers. That can be with the same company. Sure. Uh, but I think people have to be flexible and nimble and, and have to keep an eye out on where are the jobs going to be, what do I need to do to ensure that I'm flexible and adaptable and that I can segue maybe into you know a different career path even with the same company. And that's what's exciting about working in the energy industry because it's an industry that traditionally for many, many, many decades you know, the technology behind it didn't change. Mm. Uh, but in the last 10 years, of course, we're seeing a real focus on renewable energy. And there's an expectation from young people, I think, that energy will be clean and will, and will be green. And, you know, we're talking about drone technology. We're talking about cybersecurity. We're talking about battery storage and electrical vehicles and, uh, and the role that they play on the grid. So I think, I think we need to do a better job in our industry to, to garner excitement for young people as to what types of jobs are out there because a lot of times people think oh electricity an electrician or the power line technicians but they right. don't think of all the other jobs that are out there that they could be involved in and um, you th- you think how the industry is is evolving you know just with the potential of electric vehicles you know mm-hmm. they say that it, you know this is obviously the fastest growing segment we're going to see big change in the next uh, 10 20 30 years with all of this how is that affecting the electricity industry how will that affect the electricity industry when everybody plugs in every day well, it's going to be interesting, and, and we're going to need to have the skills in place to be able to manage what we call in, in the industry legacy systems, so the systems that realistically won't change three, you know, within three months or six months or, 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 or a year, and marry that with those cutting-edge technologies that we're seeing. So well, all of a sudden, you know, all your neighbors on the street decide to buy a Tesla and plug in. Um, if yeah. you haven't prepared the grid, you're going to blow your transformer, and your power is going to be out in that neighborhood. So, what, so you need to be prepared for that. And data analytics is a, is a big component of that. So you know, if you're working in information communications technology or, or data analytics, what an exciting time. Um, but again, a lot of people may not necessarily think of, oh, the electricity industry. They think of Google, they yeah. think of Amazon or yeah. Shopify. Um, but let's look at something closer to home and look at where you, quite literally, every day in your job, are ensuring that Canada has its lights on. So the hockey rinks, yep. the airports, um, you know, your power at home, your hospitals. You're part of that. So that the people I find working in this industry are very passionate about what they do. Are we, uh, as a society, ready for these changes that are coming? Will our electricity grid be ready when, you know, it's required for everyone to plug in? I think so. There's a lot of a lot of discussions internally. A, a lot of a lot of the utilities are um, very much you know identifying and planning for these sorts of changes because it's all about safeguarding the long-term stability of the grid at the end of the day. Uh, and, and look at the pace of change uh, and how quickly things are moving now. You know we can't afford to be left behind. Um, so there's, a, a, there's, there's a, an incredible amount of research and programs underway on, on a wide array of areas, whether it's you know, energy storage, um, whether it's on um, marine and tidal energy, and how do we capture that, and how do we ensure that at the end of the day, um, everybody, uh, including rural and remote areas, have access to, uh, to clean electricity. Uh, young people, as you mentioned, always looking for where the future is, where the jobs are. As you mentioned, uh, lots of high-tech stuff. People, you know, Facebook, Google, yeah, I love to work there, all that yeah. sort of thing. People don't necessarily think of uh, the electricity industry. Uh, but when you think about it and, and how this is industry is evolving just with, you know, being the power that fuels this technology, it is actually very similar, isn't it? It is. And there's lots of, like I said, there's lots of opportunities. So, you know, you talk about the ICT jobs, um, but you also got to remember the trades. Very important. Um, so many trades, about 42% of our industry right now is trades related. And we really need to ensure that we are both communicating to young people, to parents, to teachers, to those influencers of the opportunities that exist in the trades because boiler makers and millwrights, for example, are going to be so under pressure over the next few years. Um, that's a trade where we know there's going to be pressure and that organizations and utilities are already do- identifying it as a risk if they can't find those uh, people in those particular trades. So it's, we, we, need to, we need to talk to young people, not just in, in high school, but I think also in the elementary level hmm. um, at the same time, so that we're, we're giving people an opportunity to learn about 
the career opportunities that actually exist out and there. And this is both the public industry and the private industry as well, I'm guessing. There's a mix of both, yeah. yeah. And and does that have any bearing on any of this, whether it, it, it's, it's a government agency, whether it's a private agency? D- d- does that change... Uh, the perspective uh, uh, employees' uh, uh, view of all of this? No, I don't think so. Talent is talent. Uh, people want, you know, they want good jobs. They want an opportunity to, um, to sh- show what it is that they can bring to the table. They want to use their skills. They want to they go home feeling that they've got a, done a good, good job at the end of the day uh, and being part of something bigger. Uh, and so I don't think that really, it really applies to, there's no, there's no distinction per se between whether yeah. you're working for a crown utility uh, or a private industry. Uh, you, you said sometimes this isn't as glamorous to get the exposure that some of those other industries do. Is the security aspect of it, and I guess, you know, no job secure, you're, you, once you get in, you got to perform, no two ways about it. Uh, but that being said, certainly a lucrative company, a lucrative industry in that respect. Is, do you find that attracting millennials, that attracting younger people? You know, that's an interesting question, and there's two two trains of thought on this. Um, some people are, you know, it is a good, uh, well, solid careers in the industry that are well paid, and for some people, uh, that is important. Um, people want, you know, people want to pay their rent or their mortgage at the end of the day. And, and it's a growing industry. Let's be honest. I mean, exactly. it's not something that's going to go away to the, you know, going the way of the dodo bird exactly. anytime soon. Exactly. We're always going to need power, whatever that way that power uh, is delivered or generated or looks like. Um, it, it will change over time um, but the fact that we need it won't so for so some for some people they will be driven uh, and that's fair by the fact that it is a, a, a well-paid industry overall for other people um, I think really the, the what they're looking for is, uh, is the excitement about being part of something different yeah it's not your grandparents grid anymore exactly um, what about gender? They say this is still a very much male-dominated industry. Uh, what light can you shed on that and, and for perhaps females that are interested in this, uh, in this industry? Absolutely. It has been traditionally very heavily male-dominated uh, in the industry, uh, particularly in the trades. Um, I would say we're starting to see some changes. Um, we've seen a slight increase uh, in this iteration of our, of our research. Um, we've got 26% of women overall working in the sector. That is still way too low. The national average is about 48% across, uh, across the country in all sectors. Um, and, and in the trades, it's even lower. In some of the trades, it, it hovers between 4 and 7%. Uh, in some occupations, some trades, you may only have one or two women in a province, believe it or not, in that trade. So there is lots of work to be done in that area. There is absolutely, to my mind, no reason why we shouldn't be doing better in that regard. Uh, and the same it applies to, uh, to Indigenous people as well. Fastest growing population in the country. Um, lots, of, um, uh, lots of interest in renewable energy, of course, uh, within the Indigenous communities. And some great things happening, but we need to accelerate a little bit faster. Uh, and that's why, you know, with the report that we released yesterday, there really is, um, there's a call to action for everybody uh, to get involved in, in sort of changing the dynamic. For me, it's very exciting because I, I always like to try and see, find opportunities uh, where sometimes figures, things can be, can be uh, maybe a little bit disheartening or negative. Uh, and the fact that we have a lot of retirements, um, we're seeing those peak, um, we're having real changes in our industry. We're talking about, mm. you know, the electrification of, of transportation, of heat, uh, move to distributed energy, that type of thing. Uh, and we're going to have a very different grid. It's an exciting opportunity to diversify the workforce, yeah. do a better job of bringing those underrepresented groups so that when we actually look at our grid, um, it is actually reflective of Canadian society at the end of the day. And that's a win-win for everybody. Uh, you talked about the stereotypes of people, the, the occupations people think about when they think of uh, the electricity industry. Obviously, an electrician or a person that, that works on the lines and such. Broaden that out for us. What sort of, what kind of people are they looking for? What, what sort of occupations might, might attract people? 
Well, there's the power line technician, so if you don't have a fear of heights and you like working outside, that's uh, that's the place to be. Those are the people, of course, that uh, that are out in all sorts of weather and storms and uh, are sort of our, our first responders. But, of course, there are jobs that maybe you prefer to be working as a, a power systems or a power stations operator. Um, you know, you're managing, you're, you're, you're inside, you've got a bank of, uh, of screens and grids in front of you, and you're looking at your grid of your part of the city or municipality, and you are looking for outages. You're managing that flow of power in and out of that system. Or perhaps you are somebody who is, uh, works in finance or a lawyer who wants to work in the regulatory environment. Um, very different opportunities. Cybersecurity is one of the biggest uh, issues and uh, that, that is discussed in the industry right now and probably one of those things that keeps CEOs up at nighttime. Um, and those tor- sorts of skills um, are, are, are very much... Um, are very much sort of pressurized because we have to remember, again, we're not the only industry that is going to be looking and competing for the same source of talent. A lot of the jobs in our industry uh, are portable in and out of our industry. So, you know, you can segue. Um, but the idea is we need, we need to make sure that we're getting the best and the brightest to make sure that we keep the power on. So lots of different opportunities right across uh, a very wide range of things. If you're a young person out there and you're trying to determine what your course of education is mm-hmm. and, 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 and you know what your future holds for you, uh, what advice do you have for those people? What information, uh, even website we can go to to find out uh, more of what this industry has to offer? What advice Absolutely. would you give to young people? I would say research, research, research. Uh, go to electricityhr.ca and uh, there'll be information there for you. Um, I'm a big believer that you really need to understand what it is that you that you like to do, what sort of skills you have, and you need to investigate to find out what is involved in an actual job. Um, so, and, and a lot of times, the pe- people who come into the electricity industry in the past have done so because they have an uncle or an aunt or a cousin or a dad, you know, somebody that, mm. that knows, has worked in the industry, and so they naturally gravitate towards it. But we need to move beyond that. Um, but start thinking about what it is that you'd like to do. Uh, I remember I had uh, young, one young person who really wanted to be a power line technician, um, and we had him go up in a bucket truck, a truck and he, he discovered he was absolutely terrified of heights. <laughs> get over it, but how useful that was because he had his heart set on being a PLT, but the reality was very different, so he ended up going into a different trade. But it's all about investigating, looking in your area, looking at the the companies, you know, distribution companies, the utilities in your area, and have a look at the types of jobs that are uh, are on their their job boards and the type of work that they do. Uh, Last question, what's the future of nuclear? Nuclear is looking good. I know uh, from a refurbishment uh, perspective, as you know, that's underway in Ontario right now. Uh, going to be lots and lots of jobs um, for boilermakers and millwrights. Um, I know those. Uh, I know the organizations, Ontario Power Generation and, and Bruce Power, um, are, are looking for those two occupations for the next ten years. Um, already planning out on how that's uh, what that's going to look like. Um, so nuclear in Ontario is. Uh, as is proceeding as well. Michelle Brannigan has been with us, CEO of Electricity Human Resources Canada. According to a new report, uh, keeping the power on in Canada is going to require 20,000 new electrical workers by 2022. Michelle, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you very much. Take care. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.